Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how happy I am that we are back with you for our first live show of 2023. I'm Bill Nygut. We took a long holiday uh, break. Many of you know that last week we played some of our favorite shows from both Political Rewind and Two-Way Street. The Political Rewind team really did deserve some uh, time off. But I also have to say that my time off was extended because after almost three years of outrunning it, Janice and I finally were caught by COVID. <laughs> and, and we both dealt with pretty mild cases of COVID in the week before Christmas. We fortunately both have five shots, both the um, first two shots and then three boosters. So our cases were pretty mild. But all I can, the, the reason I even mention it today is to say that if I, I don't know how it would have gone if we hadn't been so well vaccinated. And I know that very few people are getting certainly the final uh, booster that's available, the most recent one, and some of you haven't had uh, some before. I feel like I'm going to go back to saying to people at the end of the show, please get as up to date as possible because uh, it hasn't been fun. I knew I thought I was invulnerable. I really thought I'd never get covid now I know what it's like. Um, all right, enough of that. I want to get right to our show today. We have so much to talk about, catch up on things that happened over the Christmas break, um, and uh, also talk about the legislative session coming up starting next week. So let's get right to the panel. We're joined by a senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, I should say to you what I should have said initially to our audience as well. Happy New Year. To everyone, happy 2023. Uh, to our listeners and tomorrow, you too. How are you doing? Uh, we're not hearing uh, tomorrow right now. We've Hello? been having Can a you little. Now we do. Go oh, ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Happy New Year, Bill. I'm so grateful to to be on the show with you on Tuesdays, and and so grateful for this community that that you've built. And I'm glad you're feeling better. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so very much. Uh, we have uh, two GPB favorites on our show today. Donna Lowry, who is about to get very, very busy. She will be hosting lawmakers when the session begins. Donna, you start next Monday night, I assume? And that's right. We, that's our first show at 7 p.m. So look for us on GPB TV beginning next Monday at 7 have you already booked your first show? Or are you still thinking about who you're going to where, want to have on? Well, you know, it all p depended on uh, what Georgia did on Saturday and Georgia won. So we know that the, the constitutionally they will have to start the session on Monday. It'll be a shortened session. So we don't know who's going to be in town to be on the show, but it may be some reporters to discuss what's going on. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> all right, Donna, we're glad you're with us today. Riley Bunch public policy reporter for GPB is with us as well. Hi, Riley. 
Hey, Bill. Happy New Year. There's a lot to talk about while you were off the air over the holidays. Lots going on. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. And we're awfully glad to have back with us um, Alan Abramowitz, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Emory University. Alan, Happy New Year to you. How are you today? I'm good. Happy New Year to everyone. And Donna, why don't you consider um, having your program in Inglewood? Um, you know, so you could be right there where everyone is. <laughs> that, that may be the best way to do it. Thank you, Alan. You know, I do want to point out, I, I do think that's really worth pointing out. Saturday night was such an extraordinary night for University of Georgia football fans. Uh, this is a team that absolutely refuses to uh, give up. And we saw that so dramatically Saturday night. So it's very exciting. Uh, for people who are followers of UGA. And, and then it strikes me on the other side of this, um, the, the dark side of football that we're now dealing today with this awful, awful incident last night in which DeMar Hamlin, uh, safety for the Buffalo Bills, uh, took a very uh, hard hit. Uh, it stopped his heart for a period of perhaps as long as 10 minutes. His heart was restarted on the field. He's now in critical, but apparently stable condition, at least for the time being. And we know that sports shows and other newscasts are going to be debating for weeks to come the violence of football. So we see both sides of it over a period of a couple of days. All right, enough of that. Tomorrow, let's get right to um, news that's really in your wheelhouse because you've been following F uh, Fulton County's uh, special grand jury investigation of efforts to overturn the election and so I'm assuming that many of the documents that were dumped over the past week or so will end up having a big uh, role in the Fulton County case that's ongoing right now. And, and I think the way to start this is to say <laughs> we continue to learn what a key role Georgia played in the conspiracy to overturn uh, the election. Um, we could take any number of uh, new revelations that came out. Let me just grab one as a starting point. We now know that Donald Trump Jr., in a meeting with David Schaefer, the state GOP chair, um, before the runoff, the Senate runoff in 2021, threatened that he would, quote, tank the 2021 Senate runoff elections unless the state GOP got on board Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election here. Well, not everyone got on board, but they certainly did a good job of tanking the runoffs anyway tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and talking to the many legal experts I talked to um, over the course of reporting on this uh, Fulton special grand jury, a lot of folks have speculated that Fonnie Willis is waiting, has been waiting for the, the, these testimony um, you know, transcripts to job before concluding the special grand jury. And of course, there are many folks interviewed by the January 6th committee who the grand jury's already talked to. Folks like Brad Raffensperger, the poll worker, uh, Ruby Freeman in, in Fulton County and her daughter, Shay Moss. A lot of what we saw in their transcripts were very much in line with what we saw publicly during those hearings. And we know that they've talked to the, the grand jury as well. But folks like David Schaefer, for example, um, who has fought his uh, his subpoena, he was named a target, of course, of this investigation back in July, I believe. And prosecutors have been fighting tooth and nail for his testimony. As far as I know, they have not received it. And so 
that transcript is a goldmine for them to start looking through it. That might be the closest that they get to somebody like David Schaefer. They also interviewed one of his key deputies, Sean Still, um, who I believe is being sworn into the state Senate um, next week. Um, and so that is very valuable information then for them. And we're expecting in the weeks ahead for the, the special grand jury to finalize their their report with potential recommendations on what to do next. So this is a big moment we're getting into crunch time for the DA's office and for this special grand jury. Uh, speaking of David Schaefer, Riley, in the latest dump, which came yesterday, in fact, it's probably the last dump of documents from the January 6th committee, since they are now essentially out of business with a new Congress being sworn in uh, uh, today. Um, we did get the, the Schaefer transcript of his testimony in front of the uh, January 6th committee in which he acknowledged that he was approached about becoming a fake elector. Of course, he didn't use that uh, expression. He said that he told, the uh, we, we know from the transcript, he told the committee that he did it just as a safeguard in case any of the challenges to the Georgia results uh, showing Biden winning uh, ended up uh, 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 succeeding, that that slate of electors would be ready to go. I'm not sure and that absolves him from any legal uh, <laughs> vulnerability in all of this. Well, that's definitely the story that they're sticking to is that this um, would have been able to hold up some of Trump's challenges, legal challenges after the election. But I think the really interesting thing about this is um, also in a lot of coverage about the documents and Donald Trump Jr. has been this scene in Buckhead where Republicans had rallied and Donald Trump Jr. was there and David Schaefer was there, Vernon Jones was there, right? And it was this whole cast of characters. But these documents, I remember, I remember I was there. I remember it was a late evening rally. There were lights. He was in front of a Donald Trump bus. And it was very kind of just um, an aggressive atmosphere. And it gives us a lot of insight into the conversations that were taking place before and after those very public rallies. So this combined with a lot of the coverage of the events that we had back then, it's really, really interesting stuff. Um, Dano, uh, speaking of uh, uh, Buckhead, we also learned uh, in some of the document dumps a week ago that uh, Bill White, who, of course, has been the leader of the Buckhead Cityhood movement and who you'll be seeing a lot of down there at the legislature because he hasn't given up his efforts. We learned about a text that he sent to Mark Meadows at one point uh, urging Meadows to get Trump to attack Jeff Duncan because the lieutenant governor, Duncan at the time, uh, refused to support uh, the effort to call a special session of the legislature uh, to uh, elect new electors for uh, Donald Trump. I think that was shocking that um, that he that this was actually uh, that this came out in this testimony. But um, in one sense that he it was so, you know, like his name was used. But I think the other sense, it's not it's not unexpected given um, what we are hearing, what's coming out about the, from this testimony and how Jeff Duncan feels about the, um, the, this whole wing of the party, you know, Schaefer and those who were um, involved with um, 
who were aligned with Donald Trump. So in that sense, I I guess it's uh, you can really see where the battle lines are drawn as you read some of this testimony and find out how things were um, perceived and what was going on behind the scenes in all of this. And so, I, you know, it's no wonder that with Jeff Duncan, he decided as president of the Senate that at least the fake electors were not put in positions of uh, on committees. And one of them is the incoming lieutenant governor, Bert Jones. Yeah, uh, Alan, I think that's worth uh, pointing out. We now have fake elector Bert Jones, lieutenant governor, who will preside over the Senate starting uh, today as lieutenant <laughs> governor. We have Senator Marty Harbin, who uh, was another of the people contacted by Mark Meadows, who said to him, please, Senator, do what you can to get this special session called so we can do something about getting Trump electors to replace uh, Biden electors. The session is going to be filled with people who were supporters of this conspiracy theory, Alan. That, that's exactly right. And it's something that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, we know that in the midterm elections that many of the most prominent election deniers who are running for office, uh, you know, for secretary of state and uh, governor uh, in a number of states for the Senate were defeated. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't lots and lots of these election deniers uh, in positions of power right now. And we see that here in Georgia. Um, we had a secretary of state who refused to go along uh, with the effort to overturn the election, a governor who refused to go along, but there are a number of other prominent uh, Republican office holders who were very much part of that effort. And I think David Schaefer's efforts to sort of minimize um, his role in this and sort of claim that, oh, we were just there as sort of a back backup plan. You know, I mean, he knew a lot more about this. Um, he understood, I think, that this was part, he had to understand that this was part of a larger effort uh, to try to overturn the election. Um, there are a lot of other things going on that made that clear. Um, so I just find that rather implausible. Riley? I think, I, I just think it's also important to remember that this group of people, you know, they, they kind of banded together in this uh, election denier um, kind of plot thing that happened, but they also can band together on other things, right? And I think that's um, a important thing to watch during the legislative session is how this group shapes other topics and, you know, uh, pushes other far right-wing agenda items through the legislature. And I think that's also why it was so important for um, when David Ralston passed to get John Burns elected and kind of hold that steady, moderate view of the House. And so we'll see those forces kind of pushing back and forth during the upcoming legislative session. You know, tomorrow, one of the things uh, that's interesting, uh, again, looking at the January 6th committee in relation to Fannie Willis's uh, investigation, is that, um, to the best of my knowledge, John Eastman, did John Eastman get called to testify in front of the special grand jury here? Yes. And as far as we know, he cited his Fifth Amendment right uh, against self-incrimination quite a bit. <laughs> Okay, and the reason I thought that was the case, and he certainly did the same thing in the January 6th committee. And the reason that becomes significant in terms of a David Schaefer tomorrow is that Schaefer can tell us one story. He can tell the committee one story and say, well, I didn't know there was a larger effort, <laughs> as Alan suggests there was, to somehow 
uh, overturn the whole election. I was just playing safety on this thing. Mm-hmm. And without Eastman, who organized that whole effort, testimony from him, it'll be interesting to see uh, exactly how Schaefer can be held accountable for his uh, actions in all of this tomorrow. And one footnote that was a little bit interesting when it comes to Schaefer and this uh, Fulton County investigation is that he's been kind of singled out. Remember, he has the same lawyers as 10 other fake electors. And there was an effort from the DA's office to kind of separate that group of 11, presumably so that they could cut deals with some of the smaller fish in that bunch. Um, And what was clear, there was a ruling from the Fulton County judge overseeing the special grand jury, and he singled out David Schaefer and kind of implied that he is potentially much more culpable in all this and could be in much more legal jeopardy down the line. And so that makes me think that perhaps, you know, even though all 16 of the fake electors in Georgia were sent target letters earlier this summer, we might only see, you know, potential charges against somebody like a David Schaefer. Maybe they declined to go after everyone else uh, and only focus their efforts on him. We don't know what the plan is at this point, but that certainly is a dynamic to watch. And that's why this testimony from David Schaefer to the January 6th committee, which I believe happened before he was called to testify before the Fulton uh, special grand jury is so important to the grand jury. Yeah, I, I agree with Tamara. I think it's interesting um, that that what we're going to see coming up in this legislative session is a lieutenant governor who was a fake elector. And then you've got uh, Senator Brandon Beach, who was also a fake elector. And they were both stripped, as I mentioned earlier, of their chairmanships by Jeff Duncan, who was the lieutenant governor, president of the Senate. And now uh, they are, they're still aligned because the, the lieutenant governor coming in, elect, Burt Jones, has selected Brandon Senator Brandon Beach. One of his first official acts as he comes in is to appoint Beach to the committee that decides on assignments for committees. Mm-hmm. And I think that will kind of set the tone for a lot of things. And it really, what it says ahead of time is, okay, uh, this is where we're going. I, I trust this guy. We're still aligned. And, um, you know, I think it kind of gives us an idea of what we might expect in this upcoming session, that, that this I, that I, they're not pulling back at all. Tamara, I want to be a little careful here. Uh, Brandon Beach was certainly an outspoken believer in the conspiracy theory. He he advanced it himself. He himself was not. Was he a fake elector? I know a lot of people have conflated that, but he certainly was right in there with the conspiracies, uh, folks. Yeah, he was not a fake elector, but I believe he might have been in the room as the ceremony was going down and was, from my understanding, pretty involved in kind of the organization of all of this. And one missing piece for us that we haven't been able to nail down during this Fulton investigation is how they've been treating a lot of these state lawmakers. A lot of them banded together early on during this uh, special grand jury investigation in order to dodge testimony. But we actually, they didn't share who most of those members are. We knew that Jeff Duncan was um, was fighting his subpoena. And I believe there's one other whose name has slipped my uh, brain. But there's plenty of others, including Brandon Beach, who have never answered any of our questions. And because the state legislature has exempted itself from open records laws, it's mm-hmm. been hard for us to nail down exactly who else has mm-hmm. been subpoenaed, what else is going on, are, it, how hard has the special grand jury been going after them? And, and we don't know if they are willing to press charges against sitting lawmakers. It gets really dicey very quickly. 
Uh, Alan, I don't want to let this conversation end without also pointing out the role of Stefan Passantino in all of this. Passantino mm. was a Georgia attorney. I think Alston Byrd, I'll be, I, you can fact check me on that, but I think he was at Alston Byrd. He, be, he went to the White House to work in the Trump White House, and he initially became Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, lawyer. And we have learned again in the transcripts uh, that Passantino essentially said to Cassidy Hutchinson, you don't have to tell him. You can, you can deflect. You can mislead. Um, and in fact, his advice to her, she finally dro- dropped him because she felt he was giving her terrible advice. And then, in fact, spilled the beans on everything. She became one of the most important witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, Passantino, it's serious enough that the law firm in Milwaukee that he's been associated with for about four years finally asked him to take a leave of absence. They've stripped his name from their mm-hmm. website. So this is, it It doesn't seem to be, have the same uh, maybe significance that some of these other things we're talking about. But this is a serious, again, a lawyer apparently not fulfilling um, his uh, uh, legal responsibilities uh, in, in an effort yeah. to cover up. Right. I think I think there are two things going on here that are very troubling. Uh, mm-hmm. One is that uh, uh, he clearly had a conflict of interest in that um, he was uh, employed by the White House uh, and was clearly working for Donald Trump and and was at the same time he was advising Cassidy Hutchinson uh, about uh, what you know what she should do about her testimony. Uh, but clearly, uh, he was acting in the interest of Donald Trump, not in the interest of Cassidy Hutchinson. So he never should have been advising her uh, on that. And secondly, he was essentially advising her to lie. Um, and I don't think that that's OK uh, as, a, as a lawyer. I mean, I think you are supposed to protect the interests of your client, as you know, uh, but you are uh, not supposed to tell them to go ahead and lie. Um, and uh, so th- this seems to me to be at a minimum unethical and, and, and could possibly lead to more legal proceedings uh, against Passantino, and he could be potentially disbarred. Tamar, um, let's end this part of the conversation by uh, uh, asking about what you think the timetable now is for Fonnie Willis. Um, you and Bill Rankin, your colleague, reported not long ago that they were looked like they were wrapping things up and that we may expect to hear what their recommendations will be. We remember that they cannot uh, make criminal, uh, they cannot uh, uh, vote for a criminal indictment. They can refer that to the uh, DA. What do you expect the timetable looks like right now? I think it could be as soon as the end of the month. It's possible it, it slips into February or even March, but every signal that we've gotten is that they're trying to wrap up soon. And remember the process for the way this works, even though they might be wrapping up their report, it could mean that the public still might not see it for weeks, if not months. Mm-hmm. We've had special grand juries in DeKalb County and Gwinnett where it took six, eight months for the final report to be released publicly. Um, in fact, in DeKalb, I believe that the foreman of the grand jury ended up suing the judge overseeing them because he felt that the judge was was withholding the report publicly. And if, especially if there are recommendations for criminal charges against public officials, that's when things get really complicated and when judges may have to kind of 
redact a lot of things or put it on the shelf temporarily and wait for the DA to decide whether to indict anyone. There's there's a old uh, statute from the 60s that that has to do with with uh, public officials if they're named in reports. So we are expecting at least some version of this final report to be released, but it might be a while until we see it. And especially if they do recommend uh, criminal charges against folks, that might mean we wait even longer. Okay, one final uh, question for you before we take a break. Um, we know that Burt Jones, who was a target, was removed from the target list. And in fact, Judge uh, Robert McBurney said Fonnie Willis can't investigate him because of a conflict of interest that he felt was um, made it impossible for uh, her to deal with him fairly. So now Burt Jones' future is in the hands of the prosecuting attorney's counsel. Do we have any sense of whether Burt Jones now is going to be fortunate enough to escape any kind of uh, action as a result of his role in all of this? It depends, and we don't know yet. I talked to the head of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia uh, right before the Christmas holiday, and he made very clear he is not planning to do anything with Burt Jones, not take any action until after the special presentment. The final report of this grand jury is made public. And basically what he's waiting to see is how the grand jury recommends, what, what they're recommending in terms of all of the other fake electors. Do they opt to recommend charges for all of them, for some of, some of them, for none, maybe just for David Schaefer, what kind of evidence is shared in that final report? And only then will he make the decision on whether he wants to appoint a special prosecutor to look specifically at Burt Jones. Um, but I think what's very clear is that Burt Jones is off the hook for now. Mm -hmm. For the next couple months, he's going to be able to kind of get at least comfortable in his job as lieutenant governor. But this is certainly looming on the horizon for him. And, um, you know, especially if this grand jury goes big and rep recommends uh, legal action against many of these fake electors, that could be problematic for him. All right. We got to get to our first break. I just it's astonishing to me as all of these doc documents are dumped out there just what a central role people in Georgia played in this vast conspiracy to overturn the election. And as we know, we have not heard the end of it by a long shot. The legislature starts on Monday. Kevin McCarthy is still hoping he will have enough votes to become speaker. That will have an impact on Marjorie Taylor Greene's future in the United States House. Those are just some of the stories we'll get to after we take the, this break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Professor Emeritus Alan Abramowitz, Riley Bunch, Donna Lowry, Tamar Hallerman all join us for today's uh, political rewind. Quick note, uh, today is a special election uh, up in Blue Ridge to uh, fill David Ralston's seat. Obviously not the Speaker's chair, but he, is a mem he was a member of the House. Uh, his wife uh, is one of the candidates. I think, uh, Donna, there are three candidates. I, I was struck by the fact, one of them is Brian Pritchard. Uh, I was struck by the fact that Brian Pritchard's wife, Lisa, 
uh, put out a post that called uh, 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 Sherry uh, Ralston, quote, a shameless hussy, which is a term that I haven't heard since I saw my last production of <laughs> the, the Music Man. <laughs> it, it was... It was interesting the day that they uh, qualified, they were all at the office together and I was down there covering it. And they, there, there is a tension uh, there between the two uh, camps, as you might expect. But um, yeah, I think that was <laughs> that was something that was a, a little surprising. Of course, uh, Pritchard says that the uh, the late Speaker Ralston supported him. So that was interesting. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens. And uh, they had early voting up in the area and they only had four people mm-hmm. who voted in early voting, just four people for early voting. So we'll see what yeah. happens today and how many votes determine oh. who gets that seat. How do you, yeah, how do you run an election, a campaign in the middle of the holiday season? It's it's really problematic for any candidate who has to deal with this situation. Uh, well, Riley, uh, there are three candidates in that race, which means it's possible nobody goes over 50 percent, which means... There would be a runoff for that seat. But (sighs) the legislature may be looking to change runoffs in Georgia down the road. Uh, We don't know quite what they have in mind. Raffensperger has already told him, please eliminate runoffs. But he hasn't offered an alternative, Riley. Yeah, and that's definitely something that's going to be taken up this legislative session. I mean, the word runoff just sends chills through everyone in Georgia at this point, right? Now, it doesn't matter if you're a politician or if you're a voter. Um, but I think it's interesting because we have seen a bipartisan push to overhaul, or not, not together, but they agree that there needs to be an overhaul of this process because of the, the money that it costs, the time that it takes, the weight that it adds to the campaigns, right? But we don't have a solution on what it could be. No one really agrees on what um, should be the correct timeline. And whatever is decided, that'll impact the voting process. That's going to impact campaign spending and raising of money. It's going to have a big impact on things. Um, So we'll definitely see that come up in this legislative session. Raffensperger has said he wanted, he wants it changed as well. But will we see, you know, an easy agreement? I'm not so sure, but it's definitely something that people are ready to do away with. Um, Alan, uh, manipulating runoff elections is a long tradition in the state of Georgia. I go all the way back to when uh, when, uh, Paul Coverdale, the Republican candidate for United States Senate, beat White Fowler in a runoff election. Fowler Mm -hmm. at that time was the incumbent in the race. And he lost. He came close to the 50 percent threshold, but couldn't pass uh, over it. And after that election, because the Republican won, the Democratic controlled legislature changed the threshold to 45 percent for a period of time. So it's there's no. nothing new about the legislatures trying to deal with runoffs, um, whether they're going to eliminate it or not now. And, of course, Alan, the reason I point all that out is Republicans who control the legislature now have now lost the last three Senate runoffs, so no wonder they're looking at it. That is the only reason they're looking at it. Um, You know, the history of this is that uh, the election election rules in general, but the runoff uh, rules in particular, uh, uh, have been a political football uh, for a long time. Uh, uh, and, you know, of course, you can go back originally to the 
the, the fundamental reason that runoff elections were, were instituted in the first place, which was try to make it more difficult for an African-American candidate to be elected to office. Um, but more recently, you know, we thought Republicans seem to have the advantage in runoff elections for, for a while. Uh, but now we see that um, Democrats have won the last three times. So uh, Republicans want to take another look at this. But I don't think there's any consensus about uh, anything close to a consensus about uh, uh, what should be done about it. So um, it's not clear to me that we're going to end up with with a change. There could be a change. You know, they could change the length of time um, uh, between the election and the runoff. That's been played around with. Um, they they could change um, the the minimum requirement. They could drop it. You know, from fifty percent back to forty five percent where it was for a while. Uh, or they could just eliminate it altogether and just say the plurality winner is elected, as is the case in almost everywhere uh, else. But um, I, I, there's, it's, I don't think anyone has a clear sense of where this is going. Tamar, uh, we should point out uh, very quickly, and then you jump in, that 45% threshold didn't last for long. The legislature uh, moved it back up to 50% a number of years later. But go ahead with your thoughts, Tamar. And then after they they moved the threshold back up to fifty, that that bit them in the behinds when when David Perdue would have won a second term, you know, he was just shy of that fifty percent, and then he ended up ultimately losing to John Ossoff. I mean, what's clear to me as I've read coverage from some of, some of my colleagues about this runoff debate is how little trust there is between the parties. I think everyone, as Riley said, can agree everyone hates this, other than political consultants who profit <laughs> off this. Everyone hates uh, this, but yet everyone is TV so stations. skeptical. Television, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but everyone is so skeptical of one another's intentions, right? There's such a long history of using bending these rules in order to benefit your side. Um, so it's possible we end up with no compromise at the end of the day, which would be, I think, a real shame to everyone who wants to change this. And Alan mentioned a bunch of proposals that are out there. Some Democrats are talking about once again um, extending the timeline for a runoff. So instead of four weeks, like we had last uh, this time, going to a longer timeline. There's been talk talks about lowering the threshold, just as you said, Alan, um, a plurality like every other state. Another option that's out there that has been very intriguing to many is this idea of ranked choice voting on the second ballot. Um, or I guess you do it on your first ballot. You say, if I can't mm -hmm. give my votes to this first candidate, here's my second choice. And a lot of folks think that this can help um, perhaps moderate a lot of this nasty political rhetoric that we've seen from candidates over these last couple of years, because you can appeal to voters, well, if I can't be your first choice, let me be your second. Uh, we we ended up doing that with uh, overseas and military ballots this time around. I do believe there was some confusion as folks were getting used to it, but we are seeing some states like Maine who have implemented this, and it's very intriguing to a lot of folks. So I'm curious how much strength that argument picks up this time around. Mm -hmm. Donna, Donna, I love the fact that uh, on the show a couple weeks ago, several people said, please don't call it ranked choice. Let's call it instant runoff. Ranked choice has such a negative <laughs> connotation to it. But that instant runoff certainly is one of the proposals I'll look at. But Donna, among other reasons, it is complicated. There's a big education effort that will need to uh, uh, go out to voters to explain exactly how that works. 
Uh, yes, I, I do like the idea of calling it instant runoff. I think anything that has uh, that so sounds like the runoff might go a little quicker sounds good to anybody who in Georgia right now. Um, yeah, I think it is confusing. I think those of us who have never experienced it because, you know, we don't uh, live overseas, don't understand it. So there will be the education. But remember, every time we seem to go through a, a big change when it comes to the elections, there's this whole education that has to take place. Um, we certainly saw that when we got the new voting machines and things like that. And I, I, I still, it's still kind of um, tough for some people to get used to what we're dealing with when we get get into the um, get into the polls and we we do vote at our precincts. But yeah, it'll be it'll. It, I think it'll take a while for people to get used to something like that. But I like the word instant. I like I like that a lot. Well, the, 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 one problem with it is it's not exactly instant in the sense that um, there's only one election, uh, but it often takes weeks uh, after that election to actually determine the winner, uh, as we saw in Alaska. So Alaska is, uh, is now using instant runoff uh, or ranked choice voting, whatever you want to call it. Um, and what happened there was that um, in the in the uh, House election, for example, there was no um, no one got a majority uh, in the in, uh, first choices. So they had to go to the second choices. All, all, ultimately, the uh, Democrat was was elected there. Um, Sarah Palin uh, finished second. Um, but we, we didn't know the I mean, it was pretty clear what was going to happen, but uh, the outcome wasn't officially determined for several weeks. Um, you know, it's complicated counting of the figuring out the second choice. Now, in Georgia, keep in mind, we've only had three candidates on the ballot. Uh, OK, it's only three parties, Democrat, Republican. And the only other uh, the only third party on the ballot in Georgia are the libertarians. And so in practical terms, what instant runoff voting would mean in Georgia is that it would be the second choice votes of the libertarians that would determine the outcome of the election. And I would ask my Democratic friends, do you want that to be the case? <laughs> do you want the libertarian <laughs> voters to be determined when there's no majority winner to be determining the outcome of the election? So I don't think it's going to happen here. Uh, I think Republicans are also mistrustful about the idea of ranked choice voting. Um, it got a lot of criticism. Um, Sarah Palin was certainly unhappy about it. Uh, and Republicans were unhappy about what happened in, in Alaska. Um, so I doubt that that's going to be the solution here. Alan, let's point out that it is certainly true that in the general election, you'd have three candidates on the ballot. But in primary elections, you could have 10 right. candidates uh, that's right. running for an, an office where and suddenly right. instant uh, runoffs becomes a much more complicated process. And what you have in, in, in Alaska is different because there, there are only two votes. There's no separate primary election. You have a a, uh, a a general primary where all the candidates run together and then a runoff between the, the top two. Here, uh, presumably what we'd have would be a separate Democratic and Republican primaries and then you know figure out who, who won based on the instant runoff uh, procedure. And, and then you go to the general election where you could have, uh, uh, again, uh, using instant runoff, you know, the, uh, uh, to determine the outcome. Okay. Um, before we get to a break and move on, Donna, I want to turn to you, not only because you're hosting lawmakers and will be down at the General Assembly a lot, but because you were the premier education reporter in uh, Georgia for many, many years at 11 Alive. 
There is talk that this year may finally be the year that legislators screw up their courage and vote to overhaul what is known as the Quality Basic Education Act. Passed in the mid-80s, it was a formula for funding schools across the state that was supposed to equalize funding, rich school districts, poor school districts, and in many ways it was supposed to be a solution to the problem of seg schools back in the day and the issues that they faced not getting enough money. Well, that's now what, 95, 05, 15, 20, it's 40 years old. Nathan Deal couldn't do it, but Brian Kemp just might try. Yeah, I think it's about time. Uh, it's 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 been tried before, as you mentioned, and it has failed. It's so complicated when you interview people about it. You know, I've I've covered it for thirty years uh, at Channel Eleven, just education, and I I still each time learn something new every time I talk to somebody. People who've been on committees to talk about it and the whole bit very complicated. Very few people actually understand it. 1985 is when it was established and efforts to revamp it has uh, just been fr frustrating for everybody. Um, it It is, the, there was a committee over the summer that looked at it. A lot of prominent people who have a lot of great ideas are part of it. What everyone can agree on at least is that it needs to be revamped and it needs to be updated and changed. Yeah. But what we're talking about is a very different Georgia than we had back in 1985. And the large school districts, small districts, the urban, suburban, all of those kind of districts, all of those things have to be taken into account. And and it's it's tough. Uh, but I think, you know, the the idea that uh, a second term governor you know, who doesn't have to face an election is the best way to go. Maybe this is the time for um, Governor Kemp to make a change. It's um, I want to lay that out as a marker. It's a, as you point out, a very complicated subject, one that we definitely want to get into in a lot more detail on the show as the session gets underway. So just for today, we'll say this may be something that will finally be addressed and could have an enormous impact on funding for schools across uh, the state. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. Let's come back and talk about Kevin McCarthy and his quest to become speaker and how Georgia uh, might be involved in that process. You're listening to Political Rewind. One of the things I missed while we were off for our holiday was uh, hearing from all of you out there, our, our, the, the dialogue we have with listeners. And I mention that now because Natalie Mendenhall, and I have already heard from any number of people who said, you said there were three people competing for the David Ralston seat in the House. In fact, there are five. So we five. make that correction on uh, the record. Tamar Hallerman, I don't know about you, but watching Kevin McCarthy go out there and push for votes to become speaker. You've been up there. You've watched this process unfold in previous elections when you were a Washington correspondent. I have to tell you, this is one of those times I'd be in Washington in a heartbeat right now if I were still at Channel 2 watching this unfold. It's pretty remarkable, the struggle he's having. And it's interesting that Marjorie Taylor Greene is playing a role in it. <clears throat> 
You know, there's such a sense of deja vu for me. I was up on the hill covering back in 2015 when John Boehner stepped down and Kevin McCarthy was considered the heir apparent, but it quickly became clear that he did not have the support of the Freedom Caucus, the far right flank of the Republican Party up there. And he ended up having to step back and Paul Ryan emerged as this kind of consensus candidate. What's different now, you know, Kevin McCarthy has been able to consolidate even more power, but because the Republican majority is so narrow on the hill, I think it's only four or five votes right now, he can't afford to lose anyone. And so the fact that he does have a half dozen folks kind of loudly saying they won't vote for him, it makes it pretty impossible for him at his at this point. We'll see what happens. There, there's going to be multiple ballots, I understand, um, for, for how this is going to work. But the problem is that if Kevin McCarthy can't make it, it's not clear that there's anyone in the Republican caucus right now who can. And so what happens? You you know, they vote on the the speaker, the the candidate for speaker before all these members are sworn in. So it would be utter chaos on the House floor if Kevin McCarthy isn't able to quickly get this. Alan, um, I mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think she's played her cards very shrewdly in this, assuming McCarthy can pull this off. I mean, she certainly would typically be one of those far right wingers who would want not want McCarthy to be speaker, but she's cast her lot with him because if he wins, she's going to become a much more powerful member of the Republican right. conference and have important committee assignments. Exactly. And uh, it's it's clear that Marjorie, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, has shocked a lot, a lot of her political allies uh, by endorsing Kevin McCarthy. Um, she's come under fire, in fact, from a number of 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 those uh, members and uh, uh, in the Freedom Caucus on the far right, um, for you know, uh, they feel be- betraying her her principles. Um, but it's clear she's gotten some concessions. She's she's undoubtedly gotten some promises and commitments. Uh, if Kevin McCarthy indeed becomes Speaker, but I think what we're seeing here, regardless of how this vote for Speaker ultimately comes out. And it's pretty clear that Kevin McCarthy does not have the votes to win, on, at least on the first ballot. Um, this is just a sign of things to come, um, that over the next two years, uh, about the difficulty that Kevin McCarthy or anyone else uh, in that position is going to have in uh, in trying to lead uh, this uh, narrow Republican majority and trying to get anything done. Um, it's going to it's going to be difficult. The last two Republican speakers who had larger Republican majorities were forced, ultimately forced out. Um, you know, and the, the, the fact that the far right wing is now larger and more vocal than it was then uh, and the majority is smaller than it was then means that I think we're in for two years of chaos. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting that could potentially even have an impact on the 2024 elections, not just for the House, but potentially for president and even and some of the Senate races as well. So, so this is this next two years are going to be very, very interesting. And and uh, today is just you know the the beginning of the the show. I'll I'll, I'll leave out the first word that precedes show. <laughs> uh, Riley, uh, of course, we should point out we have two new members of the Georgia delegation to Republicans being sworn in uh, for the first time today, uh, Mike Collins and Rich McCormick. McCormick, of course, in the 6th District, replacing uh, Lucy McBath, who moved over to the 7th and won against Carolyn 
Bordeaux over there who now steps down. And and here's what's interesting. I mean, college, we I if I have not heard uh, th- that they've declared themselves on this, and I just may have missed the news. But M- Mike Collins, particularly, is certainly a guy who would normally throw his lot in with the far right based on the way he ran his campaign. It'll be interesting to see how he and McCormick vote today. Well, absolutely. Kind of this split in the far right lawmakers, it impacts Georgia as well, right? We have Rep. Andrew Clyde, who was among the group yeah. that was unhappy with Kevin McCarthy and signed on to a letter, right? So when we have these new Republican House members coming in, it's going to be interesting to see how they navigate kind of this divide that's appearing, especially with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is such a vocal, um, such a vocal figure for Georgia and in Congress. So we'll see how they navigate this tricky, tricky minefield they're walking into. Well, it, you know, I know Democrats, Donna, are, are kind of gleeful about the chaos up there right now. But my suggestion is be careful what you wish for. I mean, one of the names is being thrown around as an alternative, if in fact McCarthy doesn't get the votes, is Ohio's Jim Jordan. And if we, you think we've had chaos on the Hill so far, that would really be, I, I don't think Jordan actually had could get the votes, but his name is out there. Yeah, his name is out there and a few others who don't have enough of the votes to be able to make it. So it makes it really interesting. I think we came out of the midterms wondering whether the Republican Party was going to be able to unify after we they saw losses for those who were aligned with Trump. And now we're seeing that there's still a major a major divide within the party, and that'll be evident today. Um, as one person um, I saw wrote, get your popcorn ready uh, mm-hmm. for what uh, we should sure. expect today. It should be interesting. Uh, we should point out that another name being thrown out there is another far, now far right winger in the uh, conference uh, tomorrow, and that's Elise Stefanik of mm-hmm. uh, New York. So it, it, this is just fascinating, and it really does portend the possibility that the Republican majority in the House will spend its time all the way to 2024 not looking at serious legislation, but looking at um, hot-button issues, at investigations. It's going to be fascinating to see that play out tomorrow. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the normal instruments of governing, you know, kind of the the things that need to happen, the bare minimum things, those might be very hard to do. Government spending bills, raising the debt ceiling, that is going to become a whole lot messier, especially with a lot of these concessions that folks like Kevin McCarthy have tried to make to the far right in order to get their support. uh, support. Um, Things like allowing five members uh, of the the caucus to be able to call for a vote for speaker, uh, allowing basically line item defunding in government spending bills. It just could create absolute chaos. At the same time, uh, they're promising investigations into Hunter Biden, into the DHS secretary Mayorkas. It's going to be almost impossible for a lot of you know, of that regular legislating to happen, the important things that the government needs to run, but we will see a lot of kind of red meat investigations and and messaging, uh, but not a lot of substance, I'm predicting. 
Oh, tell the truth. We got about 30 seconds. Don't you wish you were up there to watch this unfold? Come Mm -hmm. on, Tamara. (laughs) Absolutely not. I have the best beat in the country right now covering this investigation. You got to pry me off this beat. (laughs) All right. We are completely out of time. Oh, thank you all for being here today. It's such, I'm telling you, it is so wonderful to be back live doing this show. Alan Abramowitz, Donna Lowry, Riley Bunch, Tamar Hallerman. Thank you so much. Chase McGee, Natalie Mendenhall, Jake Cook. I'm so glad to be back with all of you as well. We're back with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Get all of the boosters. You need them. See you tomorrow, everybody.